0: George Santayana was a writer and a philosopher. There's a good chance you've never heard of him, but I'm sure you've heard of one of the sayings that he wrote. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Santayana had lived in Italy during the war to end all wars, and ironically enough, the war following the war to end all wars as well. He lived there during World War I and II. I don't know when he first penned that quote, but it's fitting coming from someone who witnessed all the tragedy that was going on in Europe then. It's good to learn from history. It keeps you from making the same mistakes, making the same mistakes again and again and again. We all need to learn from the past, from our own past, but also the past of history. And the church does as well. Christians need to. We need to see that our faith is bigger than just this moment. It's bigger than us. We need to see this moment as a part of God's story of redemption that he's been doing, unraveling since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation. It needs to be placed in its context. We need to see the warnings in scripture as warnings for us as well and see ourselves graciously grafted into this story and this working of God. The account of God's working in the past has been recorded for our instruction, Scripture says. In our passage today, we find one of these warnings from history. This morning, let's learn from history so we don't make these same mistakes. I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as I read verses 6 through 13. And I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 6, reading in Jesus' name. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. Open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to receive the message that you have for us. Help us to see Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he began his ministry here in the synagogues. He started reaching out to Jewish people. Jewish people who would have known the history of Israel, who knew well the history of Israel. Their calendars revolved around God's working in the past. They had feasts celebrating all of these events. In this chapter, he reviews a bit of Israel's history in the first five verses. He mentions their baptism in the Red Sea, their wandering in the wilderness, while the and their wandering in the wilderness, while the Lord provided not only physical food and drink but also sustained them spiritually. Christ was there with them. Paul writes, "...the grace of God had been poured out generously on these cantankerous individuals. They were a people that were hard to please. They complained about their situation in Egypt, and rightfully so. They were enslaved in bitter slavery, and no one likes that. So they complained to God, and God heard their cries and acted and delivered them from Egypt." It wasn't long until they reached the Red Sea, and they complained again, saying, Why did you take us out here to die? We can't escape from Pharaoh's army. And the Lord brought them through the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army. And it was only three days later they forgot all about that and are back again to complaining to the Lord, this time not about having any water. And so the Lord provided water for them, but that isn't enough to keep them quiet, not for long. A month later, they complained about their hunger. And their present hunger made them forget about how bad it was in Egypt. Instead, they thought, remember the food that we ate? Oh, it was delicious. All the variety that we had. It was so good. I just want to be back in Egypt again. And they complained about their food. And so the Lord provided food for them. They didn't have to cook it. They didn't have to prepare it. It fell from heaven each and every morning for them. And they still complained. It wasn't good enough for them. They complained again about the water. They complained again about the food. Nothing was ever good enough for them. They weren't satisfied with the grace of God. What was their problem? Why wouldn't they be satisfied with these gracious gifts that God had given to them? They had been delivered from slavery. God was in their midst leading and guiding them, bringing them to the promised land, the land that is flowing with milk and honey, full of freedom. Or he will be their God and they will be his people. And all the while, Christ was present with them, nourishing them and sustaining them. Yet the people wanted more. And our text shows us where they went to get this more that they so earnestly desired. They committed idolatry. They went looking for other gods, gods of their stomach, gods of their appetites, gods of their own wicked hearts, They committed adultery. They continued to grumble and complain. They were looking for satisfaction in a broken well that held no water, that could offer them no real satisfaction. Paul summarized their problem in verse 6. The problem was that God's people craved evil, and they went after it. Evil is attractive. It glimmers and it shines like nothing else. It calls to us promising us all kinds of wonderful and exciting things, but it's all a farce. But it doesn't take much for our hearts to believe that lie, does it? That lie only offers enslavement, despair, and brokenness. Not only does it leave you begging for more to be satisfied, but it leaves you empty, ashamed, and alone. God once again acted on behalf of his people and acting in no uncertain terms as the text goes on. He came and he brought forth death and destruction to these hardened sinners who cared not for him but continued to go after the evil things that they so desperately craved. And even while he faithfully provided manna day after day for decades, and God's grace was new every morning for them, they still wanted something more spectacular. They wanted something more sensational. They wanted something with a little more flavor to satisfy their cravings and their desires. God gave them the spectacular. He sent serpents. He destroyed them. And he killed them. It was a lesson that they weren't to forget. Here were his people, his children, the undeserving recipients of his grace and salvation who turned their backs on the Lord and never made it to the promised land. Instead, they gave themselves over to their evil cravings. These weren't your ordinary, everyday, godless pagans. No, these were the prized possession of God. These were the people that he had called to be his own people. The people that he had called to be in a relationship with him. The people who he had delivered from slavery, brought through the Red Sea, and provided for their every need the people that he was going to work through so that all the world would know that he is the Lord and he is a God who saves and delivers sinners. And these are the ones who turn their back on God. What do we do with these words here? What do we do with this story that was written down thousands of years ago of events that happened even further back? What do they have to do or apply? How do they apply to us here today? Paul writes in verse 11, these sobering words. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they are written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These historical events have been recorded in history, recorded in scripture as an example, written for your instruction, written for my instruction. And if God's people who had the privilege of seeing his mighty acts with their own eyes, And tasting with their own mouths the manna that fell from heaven and the water of life that came from Christ Himself, if they could turn away from God and die not in freedom, but die under God's judgment and wrath in the wilderness, how well do we fare? We better not think too highly of ourselves that it could never happen to us, that we would never turn our back on a loving God. And a God who has provided us with everything. Verse 12 here is a good place to start. Paul writes this Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The only hope that we have of standing before God and of reaching this promised land, the only hope that we have of being saved, isn't found in ourselves, it's not found in our own actions, it's not found in our own experiences. But it's based on Christ and his grace alone. We're tempted to place our trust in so many other things. So many other things. To place it in the things that we've accomplished or experiences we've gone through in the past and neglect to be faithful to what God has called us to do here in the present. We look back at our own records and we puff our chests out thinking, I'm doing pretty good. That would never happen to me. I am walking with the Lord today. We begin to replace our standing before Christ in grace with our own actions. Looking to ourselves. Looking to how good we are. Looking to how well and how faithful we are at obeying all of God's laws that he has written for us. Does God call us to obey his laws? Yes, he does. Does he call us to obedience? Yes. He calls us to be holy as he is holy. But when we fool, we fool ourselves, when we think that that is where we find our salvation, that is where we find our hope, that is where we find our strength, the problem with that is it ignores the heart issue, it ignores the root of the problem. And basing our salvation on things that we've done completely ignores the fact that we are rotten to the core in and of ourselves. We can only modify our behavior so far or so much. We can't change our own hearts. Behavior modification is just like trying to weed a garden by putting a fence around it. How well does that work? It doesn't work so well, does it? You haven't touched the weeds at all. You haven't taken them out by the roots. They're still there. And given enough time, they will come and overtake your garden. And you'll have nothing to show for it anymore. The weeds must be dealt with, and they must be dealt with at the roots. What are the weeds that we are to watch out for? The weeds, the very soil of our hearts, our very own hearts, the sin and depravity that rests and resides in there, that makes its home there for us. The fact that every single one of us still craves evil. No matter what kind of fences you put up in the garden of your hearts, your heart is still going to continue to crave evil. I crave evil. Even though I've been in church my whole life, even though I'm an ordained pastor and I am preaching God's word to you here today, I still crave evil in my heart. God's word says we are not to crave evil, so the question comes for me. Is there any hope or will I die in the wilderness of sin as well? And if there's no hope for me, is there any hope for you? I'm not trying to put a a barrier between myself and you or a separation between us. But if we base our salvation on our works and on our efforts, then there is that barrier between me and everybody else, between you and everybody else. But that barrier is just a facade. The weeds are still creeping in because they grow from your very own heart. The law is clear don't crave evil. It will only lead to your demise. Whoever you are or whatever stage of life you find yourself in, don't think yourself so invincible that you will not fall. Don't think yourself so strong that you'll never give in to those cravings that your heart so desperately craves and desires. We are not invincible. We are never as strong as we think we are. But there is someone who is invincible. And there is someone who is able to keep us in His grace. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God is faithful. We find comfort here in this verse, and it comes with many facets. If it's up to us to put, our lid on, to put the lid on our own evil cravings, we'd all be lost. No matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been in church or how often you've obeyed Christ, you still have those evil cravings inside you, don't you? It looks different than everybody else's maybe. You try to hide it. You hope that nobody knows the thoughts that you have. You hope that nobody knows the desires and the cravings of your heart, those things that you wrestle with. So we keep them to ourselves and we isolate ourselves. We bring ourselves into darkness rather than the light of God's word and truth. And that only breeds more darkness rather than being freed from those sinful cravings bring those things to the light and confess them. And when someone else brings those things to the light in your presence, don't shun them because you and I both have sinful, wicked, evil cravings inside of us as well that is no better and is no different or is no worse than anyone else's evil, sinful cravings. But see what God has done here. The faithfulness of God as he continues to pour out his grace for us. His mercies and grace are new every morning. He promises that no temptation that comes our way is going to be out of control for us. It's not more than you can handle with God's help, but God provides a way of escape for you each and every time, so we don't have to give in to these things any longer. He is also with us in these temptations. He hasn't left us or deserted us to deal with these things on our own. But he is with us always. He was also tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And he knows how to refuse that temptation. And he is with you, leading you and guiding you and providing you a way out. And for the times when you fail, as those times will come, he is there to offer you his grace once again. And he is there interceding on your behalf. Take comfort from this first part of this verse as well, that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Those things that you wrestle with in the silence and secrets, secrecy of your own hearts, in the privacy of your own hearts, in your own conscience, those things, they're not right, but they're normal. There are others who are going through those same things. Wrestling with those things doesn't make you any less a Christian or any worse a Christian than anyone else, even though your temptations might be more visible on the outside to others. These cravings are common to man. You are not alone. We all crave evil. This leads us to the most important part of God's faithfulness. God knows all that baggage that we carry. God knows the situation of our hearts. He knows that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and there is nothing that you could do to make yourself alive. He knows that you don't even know the depths of wickedness that resides in your own hearts, and yet his faithfulness still continues. As he has brought us his son, to bring us victory over those temptations, to bring us victory over those sins, to set us free from sin and death. That sin, those evil cravings that we wrestle with, that we hope nobody knows about, God knows about, and he has already dealt with them on the cross. It has no more power over you. Our wicked hearts can never condemn us more than Christ has redeemed us or can redeem us. Christ has made satisfaction for all of your sins, for all of your cravings, for all of your pride, for all of your idolatry, for every single one of those things that you keep hidden to yourself. God has forgiven you. and He invites you to bring those to the light, to confess them, to find grace and forgiveness in Him and in Him alone. If we're resting our salvation on our own ability to say no to temptation or on our own ability to put fences around our hearts, to change our actions. We have no hope. We have no salvation. But if we rest our hope and our salvation on the one who's seeing us in our sin and despair, who's seeing us as we continue to struggle with this, came and died on the cross for our sins and came to give us grace, came to save us with a salvation that we couldn't earn ourselves in a thousand years, And if we rest it completely and wholly on him, then we have all confidence because God is faithful. He doesn't depart from his word and what his word says is true. And when God says he has taken care of all of your sin, he has taken care of all of your sin, God continues to give us his grace each and every day. He gave you his grace in your baptism when he clothed you with Christ. And took out this heart of stone that resides and replaces it with a heart of flesh that longs to serve God. He has clothed you with Christ and has given you his spirit. He extends his grace to you every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he gives to you his body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, even those evil cravings that you hope nobody knows about. And he continues to give you his grace through his word. Today, as you hear his word proclaimed, as you see what Christ has done for you in his word, he gives you his grace, a grace to believe his pardoning word, grace to trust in the finished work of Christ, to lay aside our own pride, to lay aside our own fence-making, but to continue in faithful obedience to him, but to rest our assurance of salvation on him and on him alone. We cannot deal with our sinful cravings on our own, but God in Christ has, and he has forgiven you of all of your sin. So let us learn from history today so that we don't make the same mistakes that these Israelites made and go chasing after other, our if, evil and wicked cravings. Let's deal with them honestly, and confess them, and find grace and forgiveness in Christ. And let us not think that we stand on our own accord or by our own strength or our own actions. But let us rest in the faithfulness of a God who has sent his Son to die for you and who has given us his righteousness and who by his grace has saved you and keeps you. Let us continue in God's grace and God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you, Lord, for the warnings of Scripture. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge our own need of your grace that we need it each and every day. Father, help us to see the depths of our own sinful natures, of our own wicked hearts, and to confess those to you, Lord, to find grace and mercy in every time of need. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins, and help us, Lord, to walk in obedience to, after you and to follow you. But, Lord, when we fall, when we stumble, help us to see that you and you alone have forgiven us of all of our sins through your death and resurrection. We praise you for that. Help us, Lord, to walk in your faithfulness each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.